absolutely ridiculous. Welcome to Around the Course Squash Podcast. With me as ever, Sue Crawford and Christopher Sackley. How you doing, fellas? Lot to talk about. Plenty to talk about. Some some good matches, some interesting matches, and some fairly contentious matches, to say the least. Yeah, feeling good. Feel like I'm podcasting from a snow globe right here and uh, right in front of my window in New York City. That's beautiful. Yeah. Nine <laughs> inches, nine inches of the fluffy stuff, and counting. Still going. Beauty. All on top of all those things that you just described, Stuart, some bloody unbelievable squash as well. Where do we start? Yeah, I was actually thinking during the quarterfinals yesterday, we um back in Qatar when we had the five uh, the four or five setters in a row. Um and we were talking about how great those matches are. Even although yesterday was only a couple of three loves and a couple of three ones, there's an argument to be made that the quality of squash yesterday in the quarterfinals was even higher than it was in those five set matches back in Qatar. Could be. Oh, maybe it's just fresh in your memory. <laughs> yeah, true. But I just felt like at times, um, the Diego, some of the rallies in the Diego Elias and Faraz Dushiki match were just out of this world. Um, yeah. Just the, the pace that they were both playing at, um, how early they were taking it. And the weight of the shot that they were hitting was ferocious. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it, was, it was one of those matchups that um, lived up to the hype, right? Like everyone knew it should be a big one. And, every, and they've been playing since they were young. And it just like was one of those matches you get excited for and then it lives up to it. It's, you love it. And then the, the Farag and Abu Ghar match was also fairly... Uh, entertaining, maybe not a classic because um, it was sort of periods where they were both absolutely on fire and then maybe drifted in and out a bit too much for it to be considered one of the best matches in recent memory. But again, some brilliant squash in there. Uh, I just, I, I personally love watching Abogar play, and he's, I know he's struggled a little bit. I, I can't actually believe that before this tournament he'd only won one match all year. Not even just all seasons. Jeez. But yeah, he'd, um, he came into this with one victory, which was back in Manchester. He played, I think, four tournaments before the sort of shutdown in January, February, March, and he had lost in the first round of all of them. Yeah, so um, yeah. it's good to see him back close to his best and starting to challenge those top guys again. There was a while where he, he was starting to look like a threat and he had a really good run at the World Tour Finals a year and a half ago when the, they were held in uh, Cairo and he made the final. And I think he maybe had match ball, but he lost 12-10 in the fifth to, to Gawad. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, he's certainly an exciting player to watch and just a little bit different. Like There's not many players that can attack the way he does and take the ball in short and vary the pace. There's a real contrast in the pace that he hits at when he's lobbing and using height and then just firing it in really quickly and keeping it really short at the front with his touch. Yeah, I just watched the highlights back and uh, that that's exactly what I what I saw is just how how his two extremes are just so elite. Like his touch is ridiculous to the front and he puts it, he feathers it in super soft and kind of kisses it into the neck. 
but then he also has, has so much power and cut on some of his balls or just so much flat out, outright power. Like the way he zips in some of those boasts from the backcourt and, you know, the best mover in the game doesn't even touch him. It's like insane to think how, how hard he's hitting that ball and how accurate. It's, uh, it's frightening yeah, how he's able to just engage or ignite that sort of speed on the ball almost out, out of nowhere. The yeah. the other big thing I learned from that match was just I mean, we've been talking about this all year because obviously Ali Ali Frog's been the most consistent player so far with you know Muhammad being being out of a lot of these events and then and then Marwan um, obviously has missed a couple too I think so but you just have you have that like a guy like Abu Elgar with that much finishing power who's really on uh, like on form. Ali looked a little bit edgy and kind of not at his best, best squash and still just found a way he'd be down, you know, not, he'd be down, I think eight, six, nine, eight at the end of these games. And he just like finds a way to win. Um, shows why he's there. Yeah. I guess the type of player that Boagar is, it's very hard to feel settled in there. Very hard to feel comfortable knowing that he can do so much with the ball. And if he's hidden a purple patch, there's very little you can do with it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons Ali struggles is because he likes to play in a rhythm and he's one of the players that can disrupt that rhythm. And um, you rarely see Ali's movement break down and look as sort of awkward and struggle to read a player the way he does against Abogar. Um, but he seems to be able to upset that rhythm in a different way to we've talked about how Marwan also seems to upset that rhythm for Ali that he likes to settle into but it was noticeable all through the match the rallies were shorter there was Ali likes to sort of keep most of the game in the back of the court and just pin you behind him and then open up but he can't really do that he he struggles to to get those extended rallies that he's looking for and he gets drawn into a bit of a shootout and then it becomes really, really close, but also entertaining and exciting to watch for us as fans. Indeed. And speaking of entertainment, I saw, what a guy. <laughs> I love watching him play. <laughs> I, geez, I'd go out of my way to watch him play any day of the week, probably more than I would <clears throat> most, if not all of, well, most, I'll say most for now. Yeah, I, th- I thought he's been brilliant. Uh, I was very critical of him after the first match, which I said in our last episode about I didn't really appreciate his behaviour and his antics on court. But I have to say uh, he's due a lot of credit for the way he's conducted himself in the last two matches. Um, he sort of started the match against Paul a little bit, sort of fishing and looking for soft lets and that sort of stuff. But I think... John Massarella deserves a lot of credit for sending a really strong message at the start of that first game. And uh, Asal himself deserves a lot of credit for just accepting, okay, I'm not going to get away with this and just playing very fair, clean squash for the most part and the rest of the match. And he's rewarded by playing out his skin. I mean, you can see that as soon as he does play the right way, he's more than capable of beating anyone in the world at this point. I, I don't I don't think there's anyone that hits hits down on the ball like him and they probably probably has never been. I mean, I was just watching the highlights against Miguel again and uh the the angle the angles that he can produce from different areas of the court, there's no one else on tour that does it. 
Um, he's going, you know, full full lunge towards the back corner on his forehand side, and he played a sharp, hard kill that died twice before the ser- before the service box on the left hand side cross court. Yeah, and from the front right, you know, off like a fairly low boast, he's playing the ball so flat that it bounces twice, like you know, so early in the court. And you can tell even a guy like Rodriguez, like, you know, doesn't I, – I don't think, like, anyone's used to that movement pattern because no one else is producing shots like that from those situations. It's, like, out, outrageous. Um, I mean, yeah. super, super cool to watch. But the raw power and strength of him as well, just to be able to do that, like, physically, it's just In- – it's incredible. And then to time it under that – like, you see, you talk about those, some of those cross-court kills that are – bouncing he's hitting him so hard that the ball is sponging against the wall so it's not coming back as much and it like you say he's, he's, his feet are more than twice shoulder width apart as he's doing that and sometimes the ball's behind him and he's still somehow managing to whip his racket around the ball to get that cross court and like you said though angle second bounce fading towards the nick around where the short line is it's just unbelievable yeah, it, it's not that guys in the past haven't been able to produce like produce a nice little cross court flick or something from that angle, but he's killing the ball so fast from those positions that you know. I mean, I, I yeah, just haven't seen it, haven't seen it done in the way he's doing it very often. And his, his strength and stability in and out of that lunge is something that's probably quite underrated because. I can't think of another guy of his sort of size who's so mobile and agile and has the flexibility to get in and out of the front corners with that sort of big lunge, but also the recovery out of that position when you're that. I mean, he's got to be over 80 kilos. Um, so it's not like he's one of the smaller guys that's a little bit more nimble. He needs a lot of power to get back out of that position, which he's able to do, which is impressive. I was just thinking, watching him, though, how would you guys approach coaching against him? Because one of the things that is noticeable to me is I'm not – I personally haven't worked out how to beat him yet in terms of would you encourage a player to <laughs> open up the court, close it down? I mean, Paul tried to play very patient at times. He had that rally at the start of the fifth that was close to five minutes, I think four minutes 40 or something like that. Um and you sort of thought, well, maybe he's trying to like just tire him out. But Asal seemed so comfortable just being patient when he had to be. If you tried to open the court up and give him angles, he was deadly, like like you were saying, Chris. I haven't figured out what the best way to play him is. Do you try and match his power and play at pace against him, or do you try and slow him down? And... Go ahead. I was just going to say, the times Miguel tried to pick up the speed, it just looked, it looked pretty funny. Like... Uh... It, it assault he absorbs pace so well and he sends it back with twice as much you know it's yeah yeah I think he he, he can do there's, there's very little he can't do like you say when Paul Cole posed the, the challenge of like just chipping the ball up and down the line giving him very little to to play with if he's in the right frame of mind he'll do that with you and he's he's certainly physically he'll he'll be there as long Paul Cole has the reputation as being the fittest man on the tour and rightly so I don't think Asal is that far behind. And he's also got squash that is almost unmatched by anyone who's playing at the minute. So I, if I was coaching against them, I'd probably say, hey, listen, 
good luck I'll see you. I'm going to enjoy watching this <laughs> or but on a serious note I think you've just got to I think you've got to bring a lot of complexity to your own game and if you have it great and if you don't you're 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 going to have to probably hope that he has a day that's below par for him or you find some way to get him distracted uh, yeah I I think I think other than the top five guys in the world, maybe the top six, people are going to have a lot of trouble beating him if he's playing well. Yeah. Uh, and, and obviously, Paul's, Paul's lost to him a couple times now, um, and, and he's taken out a lot of strong players. I just don't see him, if, if his mental stays on track, like obviously he almost had a, he almost had a shocker in the first round, which, which I think he said, you know, he wasn't quite ready for it. But if he's on track mentally, I just don't see many people beating him because like we're saying, he just doesn't have a whole lot of holes. Yeah. If I any. would say like maybe, I, and again, this is where I was talking about bringing a little bit of complexity to your game plan is, you know, not to be fixated. I think this is where maybe Paul might've been caught out a little bit. Like first game was brilliant, and Asal looked very subdued. He he recognized that, and he was always going to respond, or at least that was the feeling that I got. And that if Paul didn't, perhaps, and look, I'm not being critical here. I would never play the level of Paul, so that's not what I'm getting at. But I think if Paul could have maybe sped up a little bit, and then slowed him down again, like gone back to reverted to how he was playing. But I think if he could have increased the tempo a little bit, slowed him down a bit, and so. That makes it very difficult for somebody like us to, I mean, to get, at least in, in my mind, that might make it difficult for Zal to ever feel that he can get comfortable for too long. If, if you can get in front of him while playing a variety of different structures or bringing different tempos and speeds to your game. It'll be interesting to see what approach Ali takes and how he tries to break him down. Because um, obviously last time they played was directly after... Um, Asal had had his big win over Paul and he maybe wasn't mentally recovered. But I think you saw yesterday against Miguel. I mean, Chris, you're saying that the top five or six are going to struggle. I mean, Miguel's 10 in the world and he didn't even look like he was close to competing with him. Um, and that's off the back of, I know Miguel also had a couple of tough five setters going into that match. So he was probably fatigued as well. But um, it just looked like, Asal was fresh, even though he'd played five games with Paul the day before, um, and he, he just blew him away. I mean, apart from a brief spell, I think Miguel had a good run at the start of the second and again at the start of the third, but the rest of the match was fairly one-sided in my view. No, I, just, I was just going to say, I think to beat him, you've got to be, uh, you've got to be elite hitting to the back, so you're not giving him you're not giving him a position in front of you and, and kind of letting him letting him attack from in front of you and kind of bully you around the middle. And then I think you've also got to be an absolutely elite finisher on the day because he's going to pick up anything that's not really, really nicely finished. But the quality of his length and width is also exceptional. His, his work up and down that, that backhand wall is very good. His racket work and his, his control of his wrist, the way he gets through the ball, uh, He's always sort of cutting it and making like his width on his cross courts is good, which is rare for someone that has that raw power. Usually, that raw power comes at sort of the sort of downside of that is that you maybe aren't as accurate as other players. 
Yeah. But he seems to be able to do both, not necessarily always at the same time. Although I will say when he hits hard, he still seems to hit accurately. Yeah. Um, it's, it's definitely not compromised. Making, I call that making the ball dance, Stuart. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> he does. He moves the ball. He moves the ball like in the right. He shapes it so lovely. Yeah, that's exactly how I would describe it. The shape of his swing, the way he gets around the ball when he's cutting it, and yeah, it's, it's really nice to watch. Keep making it dance, Mustafa. For I tonight would be interesting that, that if he was to win it. So in 1978, John McEnroe played Bjorn Borg for the first time, and Borg was McEnroe's hero at the time. And they actually played in Stockholm. Anyways, McEnroe won, won the match. One, one set all. Borg calls McEnroe to the net. He's thrown a bit of a tantrum. So I just thought I'd share this because when I when I was thinking about it last night, it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of what we're about to look forward to later on today. So I was just going to say, Arthur, you're enjoying your 70s tennis anecdotes <laughs> after your Vitus Garitis or whatever he's doing. Oh, is. listen, man, I tell you what, <laughs> I, I love I love my sport like through the ages, especially <laughs> in all those characters. But so Borg, uh, you know, he's thrown his, he's thrown his thing, he's thrown a tantrum. Or calls him to the net and, and Macron's thinking, oh, geez, what have I done now, right? So he likes him. So he goes up to the net and Borg says to him, relax, it's just a game. Macron goes on and beats him, uh, as he does. Close third set, I can't remember the score. I wasn't born. So that's a good <laughs> excuse. And, and afterwards, he go, he, so that's the semi-final of the tournament. So he goes on a massive bender at 4 a.m. and he's with one of his teammates, whose name I can't remember. You know, he's like, Mac, you I mean, you're, you're playing the final later on that day or you know later on he says guys listen i'm only going to beat Bor for the first time once <laughs> i'm going to enjoy this moment <laughs> so, i'm just curious to know if, if Asal does do does do it will he be up till four o'clock in the morning boozing and partying like it was 1978 i think sport I'm, has changed i think sport has changed unfortunately but it would be a great story if he did and just for the record McEnroe won the final 6-2, 6-2 the next morning. He oh, got off yeah. his practice match, couldn't hit a ball straight, apparently, as legend has it. Yeah, that's just, that's the old guard. So what do we make of the, the bottom half? We've got um, Tarek against Dasuki in the semifinals later on today, but um, they both came through. Um, I mean, I guess Tarek's was fairly comfortable for the first couple of games, and then Joel really dug in and stretched it out in the tiebreaker could have could have taken it into a fourth in which case it might have got quite interesting given that he's got a good record against Tarek in the past but um, um, he looked goosed though I think if it had gone to a fourth I would have found it hard despite his record for the for the Golden Tiger to take out the Mominator he did, yeah. he, did he didn't look like he had the same uh, the same energy reserves as he usually does huh but he'd also come through a very big match with James Wilshrop in the previous round, who, I mean, he'd struggled the last twice. He'd played James, played James in the Egyptian Open and lost there. Borja uh, was 67 minutes as well in the first round. Yeah. But I think he really seems to struggle. James has, I mean, James got a great game for everyone. The uh, Joel really struggles to read him. The amount of time you see him, like, stopping, starting him so often make two movements or one and a half movements for some of the shots yeah will straps like one of those stoplights when you're at you know you're waiting at a red light and you're just waiting for it to turn green waiting for it to turn green and you think you can <laughs> think you're gonna estimate when it is and then you know you're halfway into the intersection and it's still red 
<laughs> I gotta great, go back to the car coming. <laughs> great delay on the man. Good. I saw a lot of people post uh post how much they love seeing seeing him play. And I mean, I think we can all agree. It's good to have him around still. Yeah. And um Gautier as well, who still I would say getting back to his best. He he struggled a little bit against Diego in the second round, but there were some positive signs I thought in terms of the his speed of movement seemed to be coming back, which when I've watched him previously, I thought he was maybe a little bit slower off the mark. Um, but I thought he looked a bit sharper on that front, but he probably still has more to to gain in terms of his endurance and his ability to sustain that throughout the match. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of leads us into Diego obviously beat Gote and then played Basuki yesterday, which, like I said already, I thought was a brilliant match all the way through. Yeah, agreed. That was... Uh... I think we were texting in our group just saying this is, despite all the decisions from the referee that were made in that match, it was still ferocious in its quality and its hitting and its movement and its play. Yeah, but before Dasuki got hurt um, and was kind of like really coming up hard on the top guys, I just really have always liked the way he, the way he plays and the way he can put so much touch on balls into the front at full speed with power. Like it's something, um, you know, I could only dream of. So it's uh, both on the power front and on the touch front. Um, So it's just like really fun to watch. And I think he does some cool things that not many other players do. Um, But yeah, I, I really struggle. I think he, he's kind of becoming the common denominator of like, a lot there's a lot of calls in his matches and uh and we talked about this a little on the group chat i think i think he reads the game so well that he kind of jumps routes really early which which i get like he's he knows the drop's going to be played but i still think um you know there's plenty of room to go around oftentimes and, and pick up a ball and and I, I, I think it played out to his advantage a little. So he got the win. And I thought there was a bunch of times where Diego hit a pretty nice, tight, straight drop from, you know, kind of right around the tee line. And if it was a really good shot, they usually gave Dasuki uh, a let. And then if it was a little bit off the mark, it was a stroke. So once again, I think, like, if, if you are being rewarded for that, for for asking for more calls i think you're gonna keep doing it and i think it's just one of those situations like that's the only part of that i I didn't love to see is a lot of uh a lot of points being decided on calls and not not purely on the squash but see i would say i disagree a little bit about him benefiting from the ref i thought the referee was fairly inconsistent but i don't necessarily think it favored one player over the other um Certainly at the end of the first, I know that didn't end up deciding the match because Diego won the first, but then Dasuki was able to come back. But I thought he got three really rough calls at the end of the first. Yeah, agreed. And it's testament to, I mean, we've criticised him, particularly when he played Paul, about how soft he was in terms of just throwing the match when he got a few calls against him. Um, and I think that was a sign that maybe he is making progress. The fact that he was able to stay mentally a lot stronger in the, the whole match yesterday than he has in the past. Um, I think that he can take a lot from that going into his match with Tarek today. 
Um, but it brings up an interesting debate, and I think this applies to Asal a little bit. And it seems like players like that are sometimes being reft on their reputation. And I'm not sure whether I think they should be or whether I think it's unfair, but a lot of the time these players are going into matches and because they've got a history and a reputation that, to be honest, they've earned, so I'm not disputing that, but it seems like some referees are trying to send them a message very early that I'm not going to stand for this. Um, and I actually thought Fares was trying to play fairly clean and fair yesterday. I don't think he did too much wrong. You're, he maybe asked for a few balls that he could have gone round and played, but I didn't think he was overly exaggerating his, his calls for lets. I don't think he was blocking. I think he was doing his best to play as fair as he could, but then almost being punished at times for reputation rather than actions that he was. Well, sometimes a wild horse needs a little bit of tough love to be tamed. <laughs> yeah, and I can see that argument because, um, like I say, I do think in a lot of cases the referees aren't just randomly deciding to be harsh on players that don't deserve it. They're trying to send a clear message to people that have earned those reputations. Look, I'm aware of what you've done in the past and I'm not going to stand for it. And it's important that you know that I expect you to play the ball and get on with it. And the tough part about what you're saying there, Stuart, is like if a guy goes into the match uh, who has a reputation and they're like, okay, you know, I'm going to really try and stay away from that today. And then they start getting like weird punishment calls early on when they're not even, you know, doing anything funny. That also like disrupts the, it disrupts kind of the flow of the match in itself, right? Because the referee comes off as inconsistent early and it's weird and it's edgy. And um, yeah, I mean. And, and it, the player themselves probably think, well, if, if you're punishing me and I'm not doing anything wrong, I might as well do something wrong because I've got nothing to lose <laughs> now. Yeah, yeah. And they revert back. Um, I saw an interesting debate on Twitter about whether the refs should maybe speak to the players before the match. I know in other sports, like in boxing in particular, the ref will always go into the changing rooms before the match and say, look, this is what I'm expecting. If you if you do this, I'm, I'm not going to allow it to continue and you're going to be warned about it. Um, in rugby, it's another sport where the refs are very sort of open and transparent and there's a lot of respect there between players and refs. So I don't know whether there's an argument to be made that the refs should maybe say to the players, look, this is the line that I'm going to be refereeing along. I expect you to make every effort to go around and play every ball or whether that should just be assumed by the players. But that's I, one so. I, I was actually thinking that when um, just a couple minutes ago there, when you, when you were talking, how I wonder if that happens at all, um, whether it's between tournaments or, it, it's an awkward thing to do, I'm sure. To, but I think the players know if they're being punished and stuff. So those outside conversations probably could do a lot of good. But Yeah, I think a little bit of communication, like to go for the referee to spend a couple of minutes with each player individually before they go out. And so at least then they can get their mindset ready for what to expect. And it, it actually might make the referee's job a little bit easier because they've verbalized to each player how they're going to interpret the game and how they're going to interpret decisions and what they're going to be looking out for for each decision. And especially for those players with a reputation, we're going to be watching out for, you know, some of the things that you're known for, X, Y, and Z. And if you do them, regardless, you're going to be punished. So 
please don't do them for your own good. Uh, sir, I think if I was a player, I would certainly appreciate that. I don't see any problem with it. I think it would be good for the, the players and the referees to have that sort of understanding before they start the match, as opposed to you always hate that first scenario where there's a like 50-50 call and you're just waiting to see what line the referee takes up. Yeah. Um, and there was a, a really interesting, um, I mean, another player that probably fell, falls into this category of having a, a slight reputation for this is George Parker. And he was on with Jerry Gibson on his podcast just this week. And I thought George was, was really, really honest and um, basically acknowledged that he has probably earned a reputa reputation over the years. Um, and he's trying his best to sort of do do things the right way. Um, one of the things he said that I thought was interesting was that he started making a slight effort to just go up to the referee and introduce himself. And the reason he said was just to sort of, if he feels like if he's chatted to the ref before a match and got to know them on a human level, that he's not going to jump and judge them quite as harshly. And he's like, well, I spoke to this guy half an hour ago and he seems like a nice guy I'm sure he's trying his best um, so he's not going to just start screaming at him and calling him an idiot and that sort of thing uh, I thought that was a really interesting take on it um, and it's good to hear that he recognises that he's maybe overstepped the mark in the past and doing his best to try and get it under control and he also was very honest about the fact that he still doesn't feel like in the moment he always is still in control but again I, I really liked just the, the way he wasn't trying to defend his actions or make excuses or anything like that. That's a really uh, mature, I suppose, is that the right word? Just to kind of go up to the referee and just, I don't know if anyone's ever done that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like that's uh, revolutionary. Like the, or the referees get to know him on a human level. So if he's getting frustrated out there, it's he's showing the human side to him. And, as opposed to just thinking, oh, here, I've got the blinkers on, this guy's losing it, and therefore I'm going to punish him. Yeah, I was going to say, I've, I've yelled at many refs um, that I've known personally. It's the same. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like, sometimes probably worse than the ones I don't, you know? You're like, I'm mad, but I'm also disappointed in you. <laughs> <laughs> How could you do this to me? We were friends. <laughs> yeah. Classic. Uh, that's a classic college squash thing, eh, Stuart? You're like, your teammates refing you, they give you the worst shocker of all time. You're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you're going to get it on the bus on the way home, let me yeah, tell you. <laughs> yeah, you're sitting in the front of the bus, I'm sitting in the back, and we're not talking till we get back. You better does sleep that, with your eyes open for the next week. Does that night out when we were drinking until 3 a.m. mean nothing to you? <laughs> <laughs> Last um, night? No. No, I have to say, um, for someone that when you sort of just watch George, he comes across quite often as uh, having a bit of a fiery temper and um, sometimes quite aggressive. But I thought in the podcast, he came across brilliantly, very honest. Um, and like I say, I, I really just like listening to him talk about his experiences on tour and how he's sort of trying his best to, to work on himself as a person. And then hopefully that'll, well, he said it himself. He's hoping that that will lead into playing better squash. But he also also recognises that he's the sort of character that probably plays his best squash when he does have a little bit of sort of anger or adrenaline or whatever you want to call it. So he he, he can't get too friendly and sort of lose that because he also 
feels like that helps them get the best out of himself. Yeah, it's like playing on the edge. I think yeah. most of us, everyone's edge is a bit different. Some, some of them, some are sharper than others, but it's a, it's a skill in itself just to stay as close to the edge without going over it. And with also, and as George, as you just recognised as well, without staying too far away from it. And it's, it's a hard skill. Yeah, if you can, it's like if you can turn, I, I remember, you know, specific instances of both these, these situations where you get a really bad call and you're not playing very well. And, and that's the thing that sets you off into just going into like hyperdrive and playing much better squash and it gets your adrenaline up a little and it just takes like a bad call to snap you into it. Yeah. But then the reverse, maybe you're like, you're, you're playing well, you're do you're, you're doing everything, you're feeling the flow and then boom, one or two bad calls and it, and you let it send you the other way. Right. So it, it, it is, it is a, a little, I got to toe that line. It's a sign of how many great matches there's been that we've been speaking for over half an hour and we still haven't even mentioned that Gawad lost in the second round to Dasuki. Keep going, keep going. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we've obviously only got three matches left, two semi-finals tonight and then the final tomorrow, but I'm expecting some, some more high-quality squash. Um, I think one of the things that should be great about the semi-finals is that you can genuinely make a case that any of the four players can make, make it through to the final based on what we've seen so far. But also in slight contrast to the women's, you've got four Egyptians as opposed to four continents last week. Yeah, yeah. any hope of squash going back to a nice global model of different <laughs> parts of the world being in the mix has been thrown out the window again this week by the Egyptians. So thanks for that, <laughs> Egypt. Yeah, the second round was pretty global, but not, not as much anymore. Um, tough tough job. Tough job for us. Uh, you know, we gotta we gotta make our we gotta make our picks and there's push ups on the line and I I I could see any, I could see anyone winning these matches. Yeah. At day eleven of this questionable guys, there's only one day left after today. It's kinda sad. Sad. Are we gonna, <laughs> are we Don't be sad that it's over. Be grateful that it happened. Good call. Good call. Oh, we're gonna be stronger. George. We're going to be stronger because of our 12 days of squash. Squash. Squash double. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoy the semis. You know we will. And, uh, yeah, check us out on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And, uh, yeah, cheers. Good day. Happy question. Got some actual work to do today. Jesus. Jesus, Ooh. man. You're looking stressed. <laughs> <laughs>